This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the best of times, being a farmer might be described as scary, a life dependent upon the whims of weather and these days the politics of international trade. Well, it turns out right now those factors combine to make life particularly tough in Colorado farm country. State Agriculture Commissioner Don Brown joins me from his own farm in Yuma, Colorado, and welcome back to the program. Well, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Grateful you could join us, Don. And and first to weather, a lot of Colorado farms were hit by severe drought this year. Would you paint me a picture of what it looks like in agricultural areas right now? I I guess I want to tell you that I broke my dismal brush, right? <laughs> That's a kind of a loaded question because uh, it's been quite a struggle here in the state this year. Uh, Sixty, you know, we have sixty-four counties, and I think darn near all of them have been declared a dis- disaster county of one form or another. Most of them drought, but some of them in the northeast corner we had severe hailstorms. So the drought component has been a real struggle for everybody, uh, particularly on the western slope and uh, southwest and northwest corners of the state. Does that mean there are crops that simply aren't being watered? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, of course, we often forget we think in terms of irrigation when we think of crops, but only uh, about less than 10% of our crops are actually irrigated here in the state. Mm-hmm. So we rely on Mother Nature for a lot of rainfall, and absolutely, Mother Nature did not provide it, whether it had been snowpack for irrigation or rain for the uh, crops that are dependent upon rain. So, no, we're, we're missing both. What crops in particular were hard hit? Oh, typically, I think you would have to say that a lot of those areas where the wheat crop uh, was probably one of them that really suffered uh, the hay crops, uh, alfalfa and the various other native hays that they might be harvesting were particularly hit. And then the rangeland where we're running beef cattle and sheep on, uh, they were they were hauling water up uh, up into the foothills and mountains on the western slope, uh, basically at turnout time in May and June. What are the effects down the line, perhaps, for consumers? I'm not sure that consumers necessarily will feel the overall impact. We have a great big nation here, and uh, a lot of the nation had plenty of rainfall. It'll be very localized, particularly for the producers. I'm not sure that we'll see any change in the grocery store. Uh, you know how that works, uh, about seven, oh, eight, depending on what the product is, but 80, 90 percent of it uh, is other costs. The farmer might only get eight or 10 percent of it anyway, if you're buying something on a shelf. So consequently, most of those costs that a, that a, uh, oh, a consumer has to consume are tip, don't go to the farmer and rancher. Okay. What, what does this mean in the life of a farmer or rancher? Help us understand uh, what the consequences are if you're a producer and there's not enough water for wheat or hay? It means tightening your belt. It's hoping you have a banker that'll ride with you until you get to the next decent crop. Uh, There are some commodity insurance programs, but typically they only provide you enough insurance to maybe what I call play again, uh, to plant again next year or to get ready to harvest again next year. Uh, Economically, Typically in agriculture, you have to have money in a sack uh, type thing to ride through these poor times. If you're young and starting out, uh, you may not be in business. It may put you out of business. That's the reality of it. Uh, you're only 22 once. If, it, if you want to get in agriculture, you have to get in when you're 22. 
So along with weather concerns, there's this question of global trade and its impact on agriculture right now. China has imposed new tariffs. What impact are those having in Colorado? We're seeing, uh, I think, this what I would call the splashover effect. When they were announced there in early June, the tariffs it particularly hit very quickly the grain markets. Uh, soybean was the primary uh, grain crop that China was uh, putting large tariffs on. Uh, but we don't grow many soybeans here in Colorado, but the corn market plunged with that as well. Uh, everything dropped about 20% down below the cost of production in just about a 40-day period. So it had a real significant impact. Now, why would, uh, why would corn plummet if soybeans plummet? Yeah, and there you go, and that's a great question, isn't it? And the market's looking ahead. Markets always look ahead. And so the marketplace is looking ahead and saying, oh, the Midwest, the United States, is where the primary soybean crop is grown. But they can grow corn there as well. If soybeans get too cheap, uh, they're going to move over and plant corn. They're going to plant corn in these same fields rather than soybeans. And so the corn market says, oh, my, then we're going to have too much corn. And so that's what that is what uh, generates that uh, both markets falling in unison. That's fascinating, and it shows how interconnected markets are. That you might they're not, all interconnected. Yeah, You've initially got that perceived. right. Well, see, so the president announces just this week that he wants year-round sales of E15. This is a gasoline with 15 percent ethanol, often derived right. from corn. Uh, it's not currently sold in the summer because of smog concerns. So some environmentalists are balking. So is the oil industry. This could be a boost to corn farmers. But might that be bad for Colorado farmers if there then might be more people growing corn to meet that demand? Or is that a new market that excites them? What's what's the top line on that? I think where they would go with that is, is they would say, well, my, that's a market for some more of the corn commodities. Uh, the grain, corn is a grain. And so I would think that they would see that as a positive, uh, just simply because this corn's probably typically, typically farm ground has crops on it. And so if you have a market for it, you're fine. If you don't, you don't. And so I think people would view that as positive. All right. Uh NAFTA, of course, has been renegotiated, now known as the USMCA for U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. And I should say Canada and Mexico are Colorado's biggest agricultural trading partners. So what does this new agreement mean, Don Brown? Well, I hope that this new agreement means that uh, things are a bit back to normal. Uh, We pretty much had a free trade agreement to a large degree under NAFTA, and without it, we were struggling. Uh, I would think that it'd be very positive. You know, 50% almost of what we grow in Colorado, we export, and 50% of that 50 goes to Canada and Mexico, with Mexico being the leading partner, but it's very, very close. Uh, We do still have some concerns, and some of the things that it opened up, basically, Mexico is pretty much the same it was as NAFTA. We've got uh, a few provisions that are changed, but the Canadian one was the one that it changed. And so the stability that the new agreement brings seems to be the largest force at play here, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we're kind of fighting on all fronts. We're fighting. The TPP is gone. Trans-Pacific. Uh, we're quarreling with China. We've got EU problems. Uh, and so it's time for some stability. Talking with Don Brown, who's Colorado's agriculture commissioner. He actually joins us from his farm in Yuma, Colorado. Don Brown, let's step back and ask some big picture questions here. Uh, we know that this is an arid state overall. We know that in the face of climate change, Uh, Droughts are likely to get worse. 
uh, are farmers questioning what they grow here? Are they looking more broadly at the question of climate change and whether the the state they find themselves in with precipitation right now is just a, a new permanent state of affairs? Climate change uh, in a mini form is just a farmer's way of life. And uh, the climate is never the same any two years in a row. It varies. Farmers farm within the norm of what they consider a norm. As, as that norm shifts, if it shifts toward less precipitation over a longer period of time, they will shift with it. They're used to shifting. I mean, they constantly play for the average as far as weather goes. That's typically what they're used to doing. So consequently, although we're seeing climate change, they will evolve. They will grow to different crops. Maybe they'll move from on dry land, particularly maybe move from dryland corn to grain sorghum, requires a little less moisture. Maybe they'll plant different varieties of wheat that require a little less moisture. They will evolve with that. Uh, that's been a way of life uh, for agriculture ever since it first existed. Are there highlights? Is, is there some promise right now in agriculture in Colorado? Oh, I think there's always promise. And, uh, you know, I'm we're talking pretty doom and gloom here, but I always think there's opportunities. One can shift their business models slightly. Um, marketing, maybe doing a little better job of marketing, taking, uh, oppor- taking the opportunity to do in a market's running to maybe uh, forward contract some commodities. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom guy at all. I'm an optimist. You have to be when you put a little bitty seed in the ground and expect it to generate a lot more seed than you put in. I mean, so you, you, you no, I, I don't think that uh, doom and gloom is the way to be. It's the reality of the moment. This too shall pass, but uh, you have to get through the moment to get to the future. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure being here, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Don Brown, Colorado's Agriculture Commissioner. He spoke to us from his farm in Yuma, Colorado, about the stresses and some of the possibilities that farmers face in the state right now. In southern Colorado, locals obsess over Pueblo chilies. But one Colorado native, Brad Lee Hines, wants to know why other parts of the state are less passionate. When I drive around Denver, I tend to see a lot of kiosks that are currently offering roasted green chili. A lot of the banners that I see are proudly proclaiming that the chili is from Hatch, New Mexico, and not Pueblo. Why is all of our chili coming from Hatch and not Pueblo? Brad's question comes to us through Colorado Wonders, a project that encourages you to ask questions about the state so that CPR News can answer them. Well, to help us get to the bottom of Brad's question, we have journalist Gustavo Ariano on the line. He's an NPR contributor. He used to write a column in Westward called Ask a Mexican. He's also the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. Welcome back, Gustavo. Gracias for having me. It sounds like we're bringing back Ask a Mexican just for one segment. <laughs> uh, is I love it, it. Is it fair to say there's a rivalry between these two chilies? New Mexico would adamantly, snidely say no, because the production of chilies, all types of chilies, not just Hatch, but Chimayol, Socorro, and all that, in New Mexico, in 2017, they harvested, according to their own stats, about 8,300 acres of chili. In Colorado, the last uh, legitimate stats that we have go back to a census that the U.S. Department of Agriculture took in 2012, and Colorado only harvested about 300 acres of chili. 
That said, when you get to the taste test, I would say that's where the rivalry actually began. Oh, okay. These might be fighting words. When you do the, <laughs> when you do the taste test, which comes out on top? I, I I say this as someone who just bitterly tasted Pueblo chilies for the first time this year. The Mirasol chili, which is the original Colvitar of what we now know as Pueblo chilies, it's a better chili than the Hatch. And I love Hatch. They're fleshy. They have a good flavor. The Mirasol has that times two. It's more pungent. It has almost a citrusy flavor. I just think it's a better chili. And I'm sure all of New Mexico hates me now. And it's on Twitter, they absolutely do, but I stand by my words. Hey, I'm the guy who wrote the book about Mexican food in the United States. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the mirasols are the, the ones from Pueblo, and you're saying that there are just far fewer of them uh, in terms of acreage. So that may get to the heart of Brad's question, which is why do the hatch chilies seem to be so plentiful, even in Colorado? Yeah, and not just about Colorado, also in Texas, also in Arizona, increasingly in California. When we talk about, and you know, and for the people who are not originally from the Southwest, a quick uh, a primer, if you will. When we talk about chili, we're not talking about chili in a can. We're talking about, you know, chiles, in other words, chili peppers. Yeah. But not bell peppers, not, um, you know, not small sp- spicier peppers, but long green peppers that are fleshy that people roast and then turn into all sorts of numbers of things. So historically, the, the, the you know, the main producer has been New Mexico, and specifically the Mesilla Valley of southern New Mexico. The town that calls itself the chili capital of the world is Hatch. So they have, they have about, uh, you know, they, they have a far, they have more decades promoting their specific chili than Colorado does. Is it just a question of promotion? I mean, what affects the, the, the vast difference in production? I mean, again, it's interesting because chilies have been grown in New Mexico for about, geez, more than 200 years. Uh In Colorado, they've probably been grown for, uh, let's say, about 100 years. But in terms of promotion, New Mexico has that advantage going back decades. The the hatch growers, they've been promoting their chilies as hatch, geez, going back to the 1970s. And they really finally hit the mainstream outside of the American Southwest maybe about 15 years ago. In Colorado, and the story I did for NPR's Assault, their food blog, uh, the, the what, what do they call themselves? The Pueblo Chili Growers Association. Mm-hmm. So in other words, a group of uh, farmers in Pueblo that got together to promote their chili, they only got together in 2015. That's only three years ago. So even though the chili's been grown in southern Colorado for over a century, the farmers finally realized, like, oh, wow, maybe... Yeah, maybe this thing can hit outside of Southern Colorado. Okay, so it's a question of perhaps time and investment. Is it a question at all of industrialization? Like, I wonder if the processes are different in New Mexico that allow, you know, for that much larger coal. Again, I mean, and it's funny, uh, you had the Agricultural Commission on right a commissioner on right before me, yeah. he would probably be able to answer that question better. But I mean, from what I know, and talking to farmers in Colorado, uh, you know, the chili farmers in Southern Colorado, it was just never a thing. And what I mean by a thing was that the people down in Southern Colorado, they knew about the Pueblo chili, so they would only go grow for the people who knew it. Mm. They never had any ambition of trying to grow for a market outside of Southern Colorado. Now, and, and a part of it was just the mirasol itself. It was bread. It was a very delicate, fragile chili. Then you had a scientist with uh, Colorado State named Michael Bartolo about, uh, well, in, uh, 25 years ago, he started trying to breed a better chili, uh, improve it. That, that's, that's what they, that's a term in horticulture. And then about 10 years ago, he debuted an improved mirasol chili called the Moscow chili, named after a, a, a uncle of his who grew 
these chilies for a long time. For a long time. So again, we only have really a decade yeah. when the Pueblo chili was something that can even have the possibility of go of growing of uh, selling commercially. How do the Denver Broncos fit into this, <laughs> Gustavo Ariano? Uh, well, the Denver Broncos earlier this year, they excitedly announced that they were going to have green chili at Mile High Stadium, you know, really a, a part of a trend in sports, in, in sports, in Major League Sports, to try to get local food. And everyone in Denver, of course, loves green chili. you got to get it smothered at Chubby's, a good Mexican hamburger, of <laughs> course, or a, 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 good, a good breakfast burrito at Santiago's. But the problem that the Broncos had was that the, guy, the people that they hired, they make hatch chilies. And of course, most of Denver doesn't care because most of Denver now are most a bunch of transplants who are just learning about green chili. But the folks in Southern Colorado, they got really, really upset uh, using words that I can't repeat here on public <laughs> radio. But they, it was a huge thing. In fact, that's how I found out about the Pueblo Chili to begin with. A friend of mine who grew up in Denver, he sent me the article in Maine that uh, I don't even think it was the Denver Post who wrote about it. It was the uh, Colorado Springs Gazette, a columnist saying like, yeah, come on, Broncos. And of course, Denver shrugged, but for the Pueblo people, if anything, that motivated them to really start promoting their chili even more so. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our series, Colorado Wonders, which is an opportunity for you to ask questions about our state and have us answer them, we are answering questions about Pueblo chili versus Hatch out of New Mexico. And my guest is the journalist and food writer Gustavo Ariano. Uh, maybe you recognize that name. For many years in Westward, he had a column called Ask a Mexican. He also wrote a book called Taco USA. And uh, Gustavo, I just want to note that Colorado-based businesses like Good Times Burgers has green chili on the menu. Uh, you've mentioned the Broncos. There's now a Pueblo chili license plate this seems to be the the moment for for Pueblo chilies. Help us understand when you go down to Pueblo, for instance. This is sort of the the pumpkin spice of life down there. In other words, it's in everything. Pueblo chili is ubiquitous down there. Is that right? It's insulting to compare Pueblo chili. I know. To, uh, I knew. I knew you were going to say that. A lot of ang- <laughs> expect a lot of angry responses from Pueblo. Yep. But yes, no, it is a way of life. I mean, across the American Southwest, again, I can't overemphasize how important the chili is, especially in the fall. When you have the fall, I mean, when, when I was back, when I was in Denver back in August, you already had. I can't remember the name of uh, Morales Chili Stand. I think off of Federal or somewhere around there, you just start smelling. That roasted green chili, uh, the smoke, it, it, it wasn't smog that everyone's smelling. It was roasted green chilies from August all the way until October. It's a way of life. But in Pueblo especially, since Pueblo has been so isolated from the rest, you know, from Denver or the rest of Colorado, it's really a piece of religion. And so if you insult it, you're going to have a problem with it. Okay, you've said that the Pueblo chili is better. What's your favorite way to eat it or one of your favorites? I love the slopper. The slopper is a regional specialty from Pueblo. So you just get your regular cheeseburger, hamburger, whatever, and then you smother it in green chili. So think of a Mexican hamburger except an actual hamburger instead of a you know burrito with a hamburger patty inside of it. That, that's a traditional way. But I also, honestly, when you have a roasted chili pepper like that, just get a good flour tortilla, good thick flour tortilla from Pueblo or even Denver, and just roll it up, maybe sprinkle a little bit of salt on it. That's all you need. It's perfect. You get the fleshiness. You get the heat. And, and the great thing about the, the Pueblo chili, a Pueblo mild is as hot as a hatch. <gasps> as a hot hatch. It's hot. It okay. is a very hot chili. 
Thanks for being with us. Will you ever come back on the show after I made that pumpkin spice comparison? <laughs> no. I, All right. I will always be on the show for you guys. Okay. Reporter Gustavo Ariano on the rivalry between Pueblo and Hatch Chili's, and he helped us answer a question through Colorado Wonders from Brad Lee Hines of Denver. So what in Colorado makes you wonder? Head to CPR.org and click on the license plate logo. This is Colorado Matters. Catastrophe is looming. That's the bottom line from a United Nations study on climate change. It is easy to despair, to focus on fires and dead coral reefs, even the collapse of governments. But we thought we'd invite someone to join us who's focused on solutions, ones that can be found here in Colorado, in fact. So on the phone with us is Hunter Lovins, president and founder of Natural Capitalism Solutions in Longmont, and president of the Colorado Carbon Fund. And Hunter, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I do want to refer briefly to the UN report. It says if global warming rises by 1.5 degrees Celsius, about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, it would result in a, quote, rapid and far-reaching transformation of human civilization. And that could happen by 2030, just 12 years from now. Even scarier, perhaps, is that many scientists, including some here in Colorado, say it may already be too late, that the temperature rise is inevitable and realistically could be higher. Uh, We have heard scientists cite numbers like this before. Why do you think this report has fostered such alarm? In part because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which released this report, has heretofore been muzzled by politicians to come out with much milder projections. And the scientists know that it is as bad as this recent report says. So when people called me up, oh, my God, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to celebrate because now, finally, science is in accord. It's bad. It's here. And we have to act, which is to say we can stop arguing about whether or not climate change is real, whether or not the scientists are in agreement. It's real. They're in agreement. It's bad. And now we can get on to the solutions, which are many and profitable. And profitable. We'll talk about that in just a moment, Hunter. But it's not just the U.N. report painting a dire picture. I mentioned you're president of the Colorado Carbon Fund. This is a nonprofit dedicated to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and it predicts the number of days that get hotter than 95 degrees in Colorado each year will increase to 28 days by 2050, and that over the next 30 years, the snowpack will decrease by 60 percent. Just briefly, what is that outlook more locally based on? That's based on local science. Colorado is one of the centers of expertise in climate science whether it be the National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, UCAR, the University Center for Atmospheric Research, some of the scientists at NOAA, some of the private scientists in the various universities, University of Colorado, University of Denver. We have excellence in climate science in Colorado, and they are unanimous that, again, climate change is here. It's real. It's scary. It's going to seriously negatively affect our ski industry. 
we're already seeing fewer great ski days. That's not to say it won't get cold. That's not to say it won't snow. But in aggregate, there will be fewer skier days. There will be less of a snowpack. This will affect agriculture. It'll affect our rivers. It'll affect our rafting companies. It'll affect all of the outdoor industries. And again, we know how to solve climate change, and we know how to solve it at a profit. So, Colorado, let's go. Well, I think it's time to dive into that. You say we know how to address climate change and we know how to make a profit. I think why I'm particularly interested in the the profit aspect is that the argument often against taking steps to mediate climate change is that it will be an economic hardship, uh, that you are hitting industries, oil and gas among them, that many people in Colorado are connected to. Uh, negatively, uh, and that economies might, in fact, shrink. So say, say just a bit more what you mean when you say this can be profitable. Excel Energy recently, last well, about a year ago, put out an all-sources solicitation for who could supply them electricity at what price from any source. They got no bid for fossil sources of new power, less than $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour. Wind was a little un- a little under two cents. Solar was a little over two cents. Wind plus solar plus storage batteries was three cents. Excel had assumed that natural gas would be the winner. Uh, our governor has been positioning the state to be a natural gas state. They were gobsmacked. Renewable energy is cheaper than fossil energy, and so when citizens put solar on their homes their electricity bills go down. I have solar on my ranch. In 2013, when the floods happened and power was out for the better part of a week, not at my house. I called my neighbors, said, you want to come charge your cell phones or put stuff in the freezer? It is more secure. It builds community. And there are now more jobs in Colorado from renewable energy, clean energy, energy efficiency, than from all of the extractive industries, oil, gas, coal, uranium. Those jobs are declining. Fracking, the uh, people are saying, oh, don't vote for uh, Proposition 112, it'll cut jobs. Those jobs are dying anyway. That industry is badly in debt, over-leveraged, and will go away. If we want a viable economy, we should be investing in what will solve climate change. And again, it's cheaper. Once you put up the wind and solar, it's free. The fuel is free. What part of free don't you understand? You say it's cheaper. How much of that is because of subsidies? All All energy is subsidized. Globally, we spend $5 trillion. Actually, I believe it's 5.3 every year subsidizing fossil energy. That's $10 million a minute. And that comes out of your and my tax dollars for citizens around the world. All of the renewable subsidies put together are far less than what we continue to subsidize to fossil energy. So I'm a free marketeer. Let's get rid of all subsidies. Hmm. Let all these technologies compete on their merits. And you will not hear the oil and gas boys saying that because they cannot exist without those subsidies. 
Uh, Hunter Levins uh, of the Colorado Carbon Fund and Natural Capital Solutions. What is carbon farming? Help us understand that as a potential way of, uh, I guess, sequestering carbon. It is. When you farm or ranch regeneratively using what's called holistic management, you're taking carbon out of the air and putting it back in the soil. One of the best examples, and if you want a good video on this, Gabe Brown, Keys to Building a Healthy Soil. Gabe was a North Dakota corn-soybean farmer struggling. Because he was struggling, he went first to no-till. He stopped breaking the soil. Okay. You break the soil, turn it upside down, the carbon escapes. He then went to planting cover crops, many of them deep-rooted. That takes carbon deep into the soil. He then introduced animals, cattle, goats, sheep, pigs. The animal impact, the disturbance on the ground for a short period of time, they eat everything, and then you move them to a new pasture using electric fences. That action is what put the 10 feet of thick black soil that the pioneers found when they came across the Great Plains put that black, which is carbon, deep into the soil. Gabe has gone on some of his paddocks from a little over 1% soil organic matter, carbon, to now on some of them over 11%. Native prairie soil is 7%. Gabe is rolling climate change backward, and he's gone from a struggling commodity operation to now a very profitable farming ranching operation selling a variety of crops, products. This is being done in Colorado. Right in Boulder is the Savory Institute, which is the center of how you do regenerative agriculture, regenerative grazing. You can go on the Savory Institute website and find reams of evidence, all the scientific studies showing that we can roll climate change backward. Is that literally taking a, carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into the ground? Help! I, I realize that's probably a naive question, but help help listeners understand just briefly this, the science of that, or is it simply that you're not releasing carbon that would otherwise be released? No, it's as you said it to begin with. You're taking carbon out of the air. It's called photosynthesis. Oh. Grass has 40 times the carbon per weight of a tree. The world's grasslands are the world's second largest carbon sink, carbon st- storage after the oceans. My goodness. And yet we have been decarbonizing the grasslands. We can recarbonize them by grazing the way that grasslands co-evolved with grazing animals. On the Great Plains, the herds of bison were dense packed because there were wolves. If a wolf wants to eat you, the safe place to be is in the middle of the herd. So they're all trying to get to the middle. They're clumped up. They eat everything, and then they move on. Meanwhile, they have fertilized the ground. Their hooves have chopped it up. They don't come back until the grass has regrown. But that action of fertilizing it, of impacting the grass, drives carbon deep into the biological community in the soil, particularly the mycorrhizal fungi. And I know this is sounding a bit wonkish. Well, no, it's fascinating. Go to the Gabe Brown video, and Gabe walks you through exactly what he did and why it's making him now wildly profitable. There are thousands of 
regenerative farmers all over the United States, now around the world. Savory Institute has regenerative hubs. I am right now at the Alliance Center in Denver working with a team of people that are building a regenerative economic hub for the Denver-Boulder area. And you can go on the Natural Capitalism website, natcapsolutions.org, and get information on what we're doing if you want to get involved. I, I just want to say... The Colorado economy and shift it from degenerative, extractive, to regenerative, an economy in service to life. I'll just uh, leave listeners with a quote from a new book you have called A Finer Future. Quote, some people look at the scary statistics coming at us and say, there's nothing I can do about it. I'll just party until it's over. This is perhaps the most profoundly irresponsible thing you can do. You are the result of four billion years of evolutionary history. Act like it. Hunter Lovins, thanks for being with us. Ryan, thank you for having me. She's president of Natural Capital Solutions and the Colorado Carbon Fund. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It might seem like artists and scientists exist in separate worlds, the studio versus the laboratory, but a new project at CU Boulder builds a bridge between them. NEST, or Nature, Environment, Science, and Technology, just opened its first-ever exhibit. It bears scientists and artists to create hybrid work. Producer Alexandra McMahon went to check it out. This is air-cleaning art. Air-cleaning art? Yep, that's a thing. Aaron Lamplew is a Ph.D. student in CU's Mechanical Engineering Department. He's been working with art graduate student Camila friedman Gerlichs to create a sculpture that not only looks cool, but also has a very practical use for nail salons. Nail salon products contain a lot of solvents. They will uh, go into the air and then they can be inhaled. So individuals who are working in nail salons especially Uh, for really long periods of time, are at risk of developing sort of long-term chronic illness. And that's just one slice of what this exhibit is. I also met Toma Peyu, a filmmaker and graduate student, and Alice Hill, a postdoctorate hydrologist. Their piece is elaborate, to say the least. Our piece ended up as this multimedia concoction of stuff. Toma is definitely downplaying this a bit. Their piece is called Migrant Water, and it focuses on Central Asia's water stress through the lens of the shrinking Aral Sea. It involves a giant interactive sound map, one of those old-school photo viewers that you hold up to your eyes, and this. Maybe the coolest part of this installation is from Toma, which is a virtual reality headset um, so that participants can come and actually experience what it's like to be on the bottom of the historic Aral Sea. So this is a series of um, scenes and sounds that are actually filmed using a 360-degree camera on the bottom of the sea. Alice admits that before this project, she was a bit skeptical of how her scientific work could be translated through art. I mean, as a scientist, our currency is usually in data and analysis and publications and while I, you know, was sort of interested to try something new, I wasn't really sure whether or not it was going to help me look at my research in an actually productive way. And what I was really delighted to see happen, and the process started rather quickly, was just this the value that I got out of 
working and collaborating with someone who looks at a problem from a totally different perspective. And she's not alone. The collaboration also took some adjusting for Camila, who worked on that air cleaning art piece from earlier. My art tends to be very meticulous, but it's nothing. I don't need to present it in a scientific journal at the end. It doesn't need to follow the scientific process in the same way that that, uh, Aaron's did. And so, yeah, it definitely was a new experience to collaborate in that way and go back and forth and back and forth. But despite art and science seemingly worlds apart, some of the participants think the disciplines are more similar than they seem. Society just doesn't allow for that to be seen, Aaron says. I think that the sort of wall that we've constructed between the arts and the sciences is very arbitrary and unnecessary. And I think it's just been decades of building it up that has prevented us from seeing like what's happening on the other side. And I think it's to to all of our detriment. And Camila thinks this project is not just breaking those barriers down, but fusing the two worlds together. It's not art about science. It's art that is science, and it is science that is the art. Again, this is a new project at CU called NEST, and co-director Aaron Espoli is here to talk more about pairing painters in petri dishes. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. You yourself are an example of this overlap between art and science. Your undergrad degree is in molecular and cell biology, but I guess over the years you've developed a passion for filmmaking. Uh, I wonder if that helped you visualize this program, how it could be successful. Absolutely. My co-director, Tara Knight, and I both have backgrounds that are fusing art and science, but in different ways. So my background, as you said, came from the sciences. I worked in a research lab from the age of 14 on and always imagined myself being in a research lab for the rest of my life, as both of my parents were. I had a biochemist and a virologist for parents, and that was Uh what I wanted to do and what I imagined I would do. And it wasn't until I graduated from college and started thinking about some of the other alternatives and and the limitations of of being only in one lab. And I worked at the American Museum of Natural History in New York for, for several years, and it was there that I got really excited about the possibilities for science communication communication and dipping into a whole variety of different scientific fields. And from there, started thinking about just how much I was moved by um, delving into some of these different scientific disciplines through visual mediums, through oral mediums, and, and different avenues of entry actually allowed me to appreciate and and learn some of that science in a little more depth. In a little more depth and perhaps communicate it to those who don't have the same scientific language that you would have had. I'm impressed. 14 in a laboratory is when you said you got involved in this. So uh, part of NEST's mission is to present science in a way that is less politicized as well. And one of the pieces in this inaugural exhibit is focused on climate change, which has been something of a theme of this broadcast. Uh, We spoke with artist Noden de Sayan. We wanted to really rely on data as well as eyewitness accounts of how the climate might be changing uh, without forcing any kind of political bias. How do you think science might be less politicized if you pair it with art? Well, and again, it's not a pairing. It's a true collaboration. And so 
one one way that this can happen, I think, is the way in which an audience comes to the material. So again, thinking about uh, the the traditional avenues of putting science out there, which some of the graduate students mentioned, scientific journals, yeah. reading popular press, going through some uh, filter that often is politicized. So if it's if it's a particular paper or magazine or a radio show, you know, all of these things that can take on certain tenors that that people associate with preconceptions. And oftentimes, if you can get an artwork out into the world, ideally even out of a gallery, out of a university, uh, into into the public sphere, whether that's on uh, in, a, in some kind of public space or, or in a museum, then then people can approach that material in in a fresh way and see something that they might not otherwise be able to see. It occurs to me as well that when you are approaching science through a journal, say, or a a newspaper article, it's often with your head. And when I connect with a piece of art, it's much more about my heart. It's more about emotion than thinking. I wonder if that's part of this. Absolutely. And I think it's experiential. It's maybe being subsumed by a color or sound or huh. images. And, and that can transport you and take you out of someplace. Could this sort of mashup work with other disciplines? Well, first of all, this is a huge range of disciplines. We're kind of generalizing by saying the arts, arts and the and sciences. Science. But I mean, the difference between a hydrologist and a mechanical engineer and a chemist and a mathematician is just that's, that's universes apart. Yeah. A same thing with art, right? We're thinking about sculpture. We're thinking about uh, filmmaking and VR and painting and uh, music. All of these different disciplines are so disparate. And yet again, what we're trying to think about is is the ways in which science and art over many centuries have in in past been fused and have have become divided. C.P. Snow talked about two cultures and this division that happened maybe 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Uh, especially in academia and an ossification that has happened with disciplines and trying to really think about, wait, we, we're all using cameras. We're, we're, that's very similar. That's a very similar technology. Uh, and yet at the same time, what does it mean to point a camera uh, with the point of, of gaining some kind of particular research versus looking at something that you want to represent more abstractly? You mentioned VR, virtual reality, and nice word, ossification of the separation between art and science, which you are trying to bridge. Thanks for being with us, Erin. Thank you so much for having me. Erin Espoli is co-director of Nest Studio for the Arts at CU Boulder, which is trying to bridge this gap between art and science. Our next guest just spent an eventful few days in Washington, D.C. Malachi Haynes of Aurora won a big award from the Boys and Girls Club of America. He even apparently hobnobbed with a movie star, Denzel Washington. Haynes has some fans closer to home, too, including a young member of an Aurora Boys and Girls Club who spoke in a testimonial video. When I first came here, Malachi was nice and trying to include me into the community. If we needed help reading, he will always be the one to like help us, try to find the perfect book for us. Not too hard, not too easy, and not just perfect. And Malachi Haynes joins me from Colorado State University, where he's now a freshman. Hi, Malachi. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going well. And congratulations. This is a huge national award from the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. 
Uh, I'm curious about your relationship with that organization. I think it dates back to when you were six and first joined it. What what attracted you? Uh, well, I first went on my sixth birthday. Um, huh. The school that I was going to had a after-school program, a partnership with the Boys and Girls Club. So staff members from the Boys and Girls Club would walk uh, to the school and then walk kids back to the Boys and Girls Club every day. So my friends are going there. Um, the rest of the school is going there. So I just figured, you know, I'd give it a try too. And what kept you going? Um, I'd probably say as a young kid, just the, the opportunities to have fun there, um, trying new things, whether it's playing sports or doing educational games or just getting to meet new friends. Um, it, was a, it was a place that I felt welcome there. I understand that early on your mom came to pick you up and had a hard time even finding you. What were you, what were you doing? Yes, this was my first day there. Um, she came to pick me up, and we were actually playing a staff versus kids dodgeball game. And I was the smallest person there at the Boys and Girls Club on my sixth birthday. Um, and so I was the only kid left in the game. And so I happened to hit the last staff member there to win the game for all the kids, and all the kids came rushing onto the basketball court. We were playing dodgeball. And I found out that my mom had been calling me to the front for about 10 to 15 minutes, so she wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> but it must have been a very nice day for you. Uh, fast forward quite a few years, and you won this award largely for setting up a reading program for the younger kids in the club. Uh, we heard just a little bit about it in the introduction. How, how did it work? Uh, well, I actually um, started it because I was in the IB program in my high school, so we had to do a community service project. So I figured what better way than do it at my Boys and Girls Club because I'm there every day. Um, so me and one of my friends, Johnny Fugit, we found five kids um, who are really reading at least two to three levels below the current grade level, um, which is kind of surprising to me. So we just figured that we we're going to go in there. We we're going to read with them for four hours um, every Friday. They're going to become the best students, and that did not work. So we figured that we had to um, ask the kids what they needed from us to help them out. So whether that included pizza or playing football with them or playing basketball with them, um, just developing those relationships to get them to want to read with us. Uh, that's what really worked for us. Wait, pizza, that sounds like you were bribing them to read. I suppose there are worse Something things like to yeah, bribe kids for. Uh, this was called Double Trouble, the, the reading program? Yes. Why did you call it Double Trouble? Um, so at first it wasn't called Double Trouble, but then when we started playing basketball and football with the kids, we'd read with them for one hour and then play and then eat pizza for another hour. So we just got the name from Double Shovel. Okay, so the national award makes you the youth of the year for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. You get a $25,000 scholarship that's renewable for four years. And I have to think that this award is based partly on the results of the reading program. Did it make a difference? Um, I would like to think so, just because all those kids who are in the reading program came in reading at a second grade reading level and they're in the fifth grade, and then each one of them improved by one at least one reading level at the end of the six week period. Oh. And that scholarship that's gonna get you through CSU? I guess yes, that's I'm a... going to CSU right now. It's gonna get me through college, um, debt free. Thanks for being with us, Malachi. No problem. Thanks for having me. Malachi Haynes of Aurora, a freshman at CSU and National Youth of the Year for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. Finally today, a band called Audible caught our attention earlier this year when they entered NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Thousands of musicians across the country submitted videos of themselves playing an original song for a chance to perform at NPR headquarters. Well, Audible, a rap and neo-soul group based in Colorado Springs, may not have won, but their entry gave them great exposure, and their debut album is scheduled to come out this fall. 
Recently, Audible visited the CPR Performance Studio and played the track that put them on our radar. It's called Up, Up and Away. Yo, I said everybody want to be down with a killer till they pull it. Tell them gather around a tale of five bullets. We tailor this sound, this is that found footage. Could it, should it, would it be? much for me to ask your name upon a first contact make it to the hall of fame upon a first contract address you in a righteous way so there's no combat got that do it civilly least of all it's you most of all i'm torn already added keys don't make us call a horn corpus of audible coming to torch you all hot rats drop that crispy please hop up Gosh, that is gorgeous. Audible of Colorado Springs with the track Up, Up and Away. Look for their debut album, First Contact, later this year. I'm Ryan Warner, Colorado Matters and CPR News. Portable sprouts that farm fresh produce is no use. 